0: Glad you joined us today. Six weeks now into our study about the Bible and the role it's meant to have in our lives. And I want to start today by asking you a question. Have you ever been misquoted? Thinking that you communicated something maybe very important, and then when you heard how the person went off and reported it, you could tell either they weren't listening at all or heard whatever they wanted to hear. Or worse yet, you suspect that they've turned it into something that they know isn't true but is better fitting for their outcome. Have you ever had that experience? We do that with this book all the time. We have spent the last five weeks looking at what this book is, how it is God's Word, how we can trust it, be confident that that it is His communication to us for belief and life and faith. And what we're going to talk about today gets us right down to the nitty-gritty of how we treat God's Word correctly. And what I hope we're going to discover as we talk about what I believe is the process of getting the message that God intended... I think if if we're open, we'll we'll recognize the fact that we misquote God constantly. (laughs) We haven't been trained well to understand what the Bible is. We have this mystical, almost superstitious notion that the words themselves have some magic to them, so we, we use it for the outcome that we'd like. But there is something God intended to say to us in every word. And we come to God's Word not asking, what does it say to you? What we need to ask is, what does it say, and what does it mean for my life? What is God's message through His Word? Today, we're going to look at the challenge of taking ancient words and bringing them into modern times. Several years ago, I had the privilege of taking a trip with World Vision to Malawi, and I had an opportunity to see some of the work they're doing in rural communities, this picture was a typical village. It's hard for us to think that uh, even in a place like Africa, there's still uh, those that are living in such primitive condition. It's a difficult life. It's eked out in a difficult land. On one of our trips up into one of these areas, the villagers had set up a whole display for us to show how they do different things. There was one man who was showing us how they make fire. I want to show you that man now. What do you notice on his head? It's a Boston Red Sox hat. (laughs) What most people wear in third world countries is our used clothing. Some of us were wearing Red Sox hats, and our first thought was something in common. And of course, he didn't have a clue who the Red Sox were. They were completely irrelevant to him and his world. To me, when I think about the challenge that we have of taking ancient words from ancient times and recognizing that they're God's living word for us today, that difference shown in that picture expresses the difficulty that we can have. And yet, we are challenged to rightly handle the word of God. Remember last week we were in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Let's bring that up and let's say this verse together. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, and who correctly handles the Word of God. What I'm going to do today is more of a seminar than it is a sermon. It's a seminar largely on how I do a sermon, but it's also for you to learn how to study God's Word in a way that truly transforms you. But in order for you to be willing to hear what I'm going to say— you have to be motivated enough. That phrase, do your best, means be zealous about it. Like at the beginning of something that you're so excited about, you want to soak in everything that you can to learn about it. It's that kind of zeal we're to have as we approach God's Word. The second phrase is present yourself to God. And you remember the, the word I, I described there in present is the same word for a bride being presented to its groom. So that's speaking about relationship. We, in Christ, have been reconciled to God. We have a living relationship with the living God. And many of us say, well, that that sounds great in theory, but I've never heard the voice of God. Oh, yes, you have. All of us have. Every time we open the book, God is speaking to us. The one who loves us more than anything has spoken. How do I get closer to God? I open the book. It's his word to me, see? So it's that kind of a relationship. And then the third phrase was a workman, and that's a skilled craftsman. To really be in God's Word takes some training, takes some skill in order to, and then that's the last phrase, correctly handle the word of God. And that word correctly handle is connected with the phrase craftsman, and it means cutting a straight line, see? All of us are to treat God's word that way. If I were to summarize those top three areas, we need to have passion, it needs to be personal, and, and we need some practice. I can't give you that hunger. But without that, you're going to find yourself making excuses for what I'm about to present to you you're going to say, well, that's good for pastor. I'm glad pastor works that hard to understand the Bible. And that might be good for the Bible study leaders or somebody else that has more time in their day or more energy or is a little more intellectual. And if you find yourself making excuses for the effort I'm going to encourage you to put in, can I lovingly suggest that you are probably part of the problem of the church today, that we have treated God's word so sentimentally And why so much misunderstanding exists across the body of Christ about so many things. And you may find yourself saying, little old me? (laughs) How am I doing that? Well, in as much as you excuse yourself, and then the next person says they're the exception, and then the next person says they're the exception, then you're the norm. It ought to matter to you. Because without really letting God's word come to life and changing you, you will never become what God wants you to become. That was week three, I believe, right? All scripture is God-breathed. It's profitable for doctrine, telling us what is right. For rebuke, telling us what's not right. (laughs) For correction, telling us how to get right. For instruction in righteousness, telling us how to stay right. Why? So that you and I, might be complete, fully equipped for all that God wants. There is no path to that that doesn't go directly through God's Word. People died so that you could have this book in your lap. And with that privilege comes responsibility. All right. I want to share with you a great illustration from a a book I I referenced last week, Scott Duvall and Daniel Hayes' book called Grasping God's Word. The technical term is to exegete God's Word, to get in and understand what it is that God is trying to say to us. I have this great little illustration to describe it, and it begins with the ancient village, which should be showing up right there. Okay, yeah, it's not exactly Disney-quality cartoons, but I think you'll get the picture. So, this is the world in which Scripture is given to us. It's agrarian, it's ancient, it is non-technical, it's superstitious. This is the world to which Scripture is given. Then, this is the world that we live in. There is a huge gap, and the illustration is of a river. The river is the distance between the meaning to the original listeners and us, And that distance has a lot of contributors, culture, the shifting culture, the ancient languages, uh, the time that has transpired, the specific situation that these people are in. Sometimes a very specific thing is being said to a very specific person about a very specific circumstance. And we need to get that in order to see what might translate to us. How do we expand that? Well, that's what we're going to learn is called the principle bridge. How do we take an ancient truth and gather from it the eternal principle or the eternal belief or the eternal command and bring that into our lives? One of the things we talked about last week is that there is a meaning to every passage. So we don't come at it and say, well, what do you get out of it? That's that's not the point. What we need to get out of it is what God put into it. We don't put truth into the text. We bring truth out of the text. There's one meaning, but there are many ways that it applies to our lives. Once we understand the eternal principle, and then that application is where we can say, what is God doing in me because of what he said? And that's where our stories vary based on the circumstance we're in and the place we are in our spiritual journey, the difficulties or the joys or the different challenges that we're facing. So that's the illustration, and it speaks to four different questions that we ask in the process. I hope you'll take notes and then try to put this into practice in some way this next week. The first question we need to ask when we come to a passage is, what did it mean to the original audience? How do we go about doing that? Well, the first thing you need to do is just read it very carefully. Just read it, and don't read it lightly. Read it as a whole. Get what it's saying. I want to talk about a common misinterpretation of a passage simply because people have quoted a verse over and over again without actually reading the text, and that's in Matthew chapter 7. There's this interesting little passage that says, you know it, judge not lest ye be judged. That's spoken by people outside of Christianity, right? And often they're preaching at Christians <laughs> who are trying to point out their need to come to Christ. Judge not lest ye be judged. It's one thing for a non-Christian to misquote the Bible, but we do it as well. We take that passage to mean that in essence we have no right to criticize To point out issues in people's lives because we're all broken and we need to simply accept each other the way we are. Simply turning to the passage and reading it will change your view of what's being said completely. Let me read the whole passage to you. It's right in the middle of one of Jesus' famous discourses. So even now I'm not going to pick up the whole discourse, but we're going to start at verse 1 of Matthew 7. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? There's another famous passage we love to say. But let's read the whole thing. How can you say to your brother, let me take out the speck of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, And then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. See, what Jesus is targeting here is not the idea that we shouldn't speak truthfully to each other about issues in our life. What he's targeting is our hypocrisy in it. The broader truth of Scripture is that the body of Christ speaks the truth in love, and that's how we grow. But we need to do it humbly. We need to make sure that we are dealing with the issues in our life as well. So that then we have a clear view of what to say to each other. That's a very different thing than how we've used that. Would you agree with that? So, you see, just reading it. Just read it. Stop repeating things as though you know what's being said if you've never actually read what God said. Read it. Another thing we need to do is to get the context or, or the backstory. You'll notice when I preach, I talk about the context a lot because to me, we can't really understand the message if we don't understand the setting. And for a lot of people, that's an intimidating thought. Well, how do I find all those things out? It's really not that hard to get the context. You just back up and you read what the story is. I want to quickly take you to a passage that just getting the context would dramatically change how we have typically used this verse. It's another one of those great verses that I think is meant to be hopeful to us, but we take it to an extreme. It's Jeremiah chapter 29. How many know this verse? How many have received it on a Hallmark greeting card? I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. How many of us have taken that? Maybe maybe at the beginning of a new journey, we've had people quote that verse to us, and we take it and we apply it to our immediate context, and we say, I trust that God's got something really wonderful for me, because that's what he's promised. I know the plans I have for him, and for a hope and a future, and I'm naming it, and I'm claiming it. The context tells us something quite different. If you go back to Jeremiah 28, what you'll find out is that What has happened to Israel is what Jeremiah has been telling them would happen all along. Because of your sin. Because you've compromised the temple. Because you've brought other idols into the courts of the temple. And you've stopped worshiping God and you've defiled it. If you don't turn, you're going to be removed completely. Babylon has come in and taken out many of the treasures from both the temple and from the palace. They've taken away the king And they've imposed a different person in place, which was typical. And in that setting, in Jeremiah 28, another prophet stands up and says, the Lord has told me that in two years we're going to be fully restored, that all that we've lost, the king and all the things that were taken from the temple, they're all going to come back in two years. And when he said it, everybody rejoiced. Well, that's what God has said. And Jeremiah had to stand up and say that prophet because he spoke what is not true. Saying he spoke for God is going to be dead in a very short time. And that took place. And then Jeremiah has to write. He writes to the king in Babylon. He writes to those that have gone with him. And he said, basically, settle in. Seventy years. Then what happens is the king, listening to the false prophet, chooses to rebel Against Nebuchadnezzar. And so Nebuchadnezzar comes in and he ransacks the temple. He burns it down to the ground. It's left in ruins. He destroys the walls. He takes out most of the people and brings them into Babylon and leaves a very poor remnant simply to work the land. And the city is completely destroyed. All right. And that happens after Jeremiah says, Thus saith the Lord. I know the plans I have for you. They're plans not to harm you. They're plans of a hope and a future. And then in chapter 30, he writes to the exiles now. And he literally says, settle in, build houses, have children. You're going to die in Babylon. Your children are going to die in Babylon. And in all that, God still says to you, my plans for you are for a hope and a future. Doesn't that change how you look at that passage? We're not going to dig farther into what that really means. But my point is, we have used it so tritely. It's so much more. Getting the backstory is a critical piece. A third thing that we need to pay attention to as we're trying to get the original message is the type of literature that it is. The Bible doesn't come to us as a single form of literature. I mentioned this several times. There's narrative. Within narrative is history. There's the law. There's wisdom literature. There's prophetic literature. There's the gospels who are also narrative. Then there's the epistles, which are correspondence between the apostles and the church fathers and the young Christian congregations. And then again, you have John with apocalyptic prophetic literature. The type of literature determines very much how you take it. Let me give an example I've pointed out to you in the past of how we have misused wisdom literature. In Proverbs 22, six, we have this famous promise, train up a child in the way he should go, and in the end, he will not depart from it. How many of of course, you've heard that passage, right? How many parents have taken hope in that passage? I sure have, right? Now, should we hope in it? Yes, but how do you interpret Wisdom literature as opposed to prophetic literature. Prophetic literature says, as Jeremiah said, thus saith the Lord. If you do this, this is going to happen. If you don't do it, this is going to happen. Wisdom literature is completely different. Wisdom literature is about the way things go in life. The course that life naturally takes when we live our lives according to God's plan. But it's not prophetic. It's a likelihood, not a prophecy. So when we come to that passage and we say, train up a child in the way they should go and in the end they will not depart from it, what they're saying is, that's how it tends to go. So raise your child well. That's your best chance for them to stay strong in the Lord. But here's how we've misused it. Because we take it as though it's prophecy, when we see a family where someone has grown up and abandoned the faith, what do we assume about those parents? Yeah. Yeah that they failed to train up the child in the way they should go. Why? Because we don't understand the type of literature and what God's actually saying to us. Not everything in the Bible is meant to be a prophecy or a precept. See, they are more principles, generalities. Wisdom says this. This is how life tends to go for you. That's what the book of Proverbs is all about. See, we come at that differently than the prophets or Jesus who speaks for God or the apostles who spoke with the authority of God. You see, that's how we respect the word as God gave it to us. That's what it means to rightly handle it. And we don't really get the original meaning if we don't pay attention to that. Doing all that, it's helpful to try to summarize for ourselves what exactly it is God said the original people. Whether it's a single verse or a passage or a discourse or a whole book, whatever the scope of what we're studying, we need to bring it down to something that we say, this is what God is saying, that we can then look at it and deal with it. So we call it a concise stating of the passage. I want you to turn with me to Joshua chapter 1. We're going to use this as an illustration over the next few minutes to show you how this process might work. Joshua chapter 1. I'm just going to read the first nine verses. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give to them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country, to the great sea on the west. No one will be able to stand up against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. All right, a lot of great stuff in here. This whole story of the book of Joshua is a great book to study, to find hope and lessons about how to pursue God's life for us. But how do we do that? How do we take this and move it into our lives? Well, we start by doing everything we've said, grasping the real message. And if we were to take and make a concise statement of what the message of Joshua 1, nine by reading it carefully, by getting the backstory. Uh, By understanding that this is a transition in leadership, the previous generation has died because of the disobedience. Moses himself has died also. And now Joshua and a whole new generation of people who were not those that were liberated from Egypt, but the children of those people are about to finally experience God's provision of the promised land. So that's the background story. If we were to look at that, look at the type of literature it is, which is history... So this is a specific set of people about to do a specific thing, and God is saying personal things to them. It's important that we understand that that's what narrative is. What is it that God is actually saying? And it might be something like this. The Lord commanded Joshua, the new leader of Israel, to draw strength and courage from God's empowering presence to be obedient to the law of Moses and to meditate on the law so that he would be successful in the conquest of the promised land. Now, how do we take that and move it into what God is meant to say to us? Question two, how are we different than the original audience? This is where we measure the gap that exists between where we are today and the message as it came to the original people. Things that we need to think about are the cultural differences. I'm not going to preach it, but let me just list a few. These people, their parents were slaves for four centuries. They themselves have never known anything but drifting in the wilderness. They are nomadic. They have been eating manna and quail that God's provided miraculously. They've been spoon-fed and carried by God up until this moment. That's a pretty strong difference. We live in a very different culture compared to that. How about the politics of the time? In this case, uh, this is very much uh, what you might call a theocracy. God is just leading, and he's leading through a single, strong voice. That's a different setting than where we are not only as a government, but also with how we deal with church. How about language? In this passage, are there words that matter that we should pay attention to? the specific circumstances. Do they translate into something for us, or are they uniquely for this setting? Uh, This circumstance is about coming into the promised land. Let me me show you one way that I've heard this passage taught that fails to actually cross the bridge (laughs) over into a way that is truth for us. When a Christian organization, for instance, was trying to buy a piece of property believing that this might be where God wants them. In prayer, I've heard people take this passage and take it as a literal expression of God that we will inherit that land. And the same way God was saying it to them, he's saying it to us about this specific situation. That's a horrible use of this passage. Could it be that it's God's will? It could be, but we don't know that for Sure. And it would be a misuse of this to presume that because God said it specifically to them, that it's for all of us about any specific thing we want right now for our lives. That's an abuse of the passage, see. We need to understand what is exclusive about the circumstance and what may not therefore translate going forward. It's important that we understand the covenant in which these situations take place. This is the old covenant the Mosaic covenant. This is under the law. And that's a very different set of circumstances as to how God related to them as opposed to how we are under the new covenant since Christ has come, since the cross, since the law has been fulfilled, and we have freedom in Christ because of grace. So all these things are important for us to understand. Let me just list a few things that would be helpful for you to have as you go to this part of the passage. A good study Bible. The one that we like as a church is the NIV Study Bible, because it's got wonderful notes that help you get the background story, understand the context. It actually will deal with specific language that we might not understand even with the best of translations. So a good study Bible, one with notes, but also a very good translation In fact, I would suggest that you have several good translations. There are several good ones out there. I'll spend more time talking about that either next week or the week to follow. How do you pick a good Bible? But get a good translation. Get several translations so you can get the different ways that scholars look at the language and try to bring it to us in modern language. Another thing that's good to have, uh, by the way, this is my favorite Bible, and this is a Thompson Chain reference Bible. I love this Bible if I would only have one tool with me to preach and to grow myself and to grow a congregation, it would be the Thompson Chain Bible. It's a phenomenal Bible. I'm going to show you something. That's duct tape. That's packaging tape. That's gray duct tape. <laughs> There's that phrase, show me a Bible that's falling apart. I'll show you a person that isn't. I hope that's true about me. This isn't the, the Word of God uniquely. This is a translation of the Word of God. It's a tool for me. And y- you can see, I, I'll, I can show you all sorts of places where I've got marks and notes. And I, I'll keep this until I've got no more room to write anything else in it. And then I'll buy another one and I'll start again. See? And the, the passages in here that let you get the broader picture... And help you reference and follow trains of ideas, historical lines, uh, you know, subplots that carry over generations, themes, uh, unique language. It's a wonderful tool. All those things help you dive deeper and understand all these different pieces of the original Message to the audience, but also to understand the gap, the difference between us and them. Let me just quickly go to question number three and we'll wrap up with this. Then we'll move forward next week with question four. So, having drawn out the original message that God gave to the original audience, then measured the gap between us and them, the next thing we need to do then is say, okay, what is the eternal truth? That was true both for the original audience, but also translates to us today. What are the eternal truths or principles? And one of the ways to help us is to ask the question, are there similarities? We've noted the differences. We've noted the big gap, but what's similar? When we did our study on uh, hope for hard times, First Peter, when we did the study on First Peter, didn't we spend a lot of time contrasting our culture with the culture of the day? And we found there were actually a lot of similarities as well that helped us. So, what are the similarities in this passage that help us understand this? Are there similarities? Um, What we're looking for when we look for eternal principles is one or several of the following. A doctrine, something that we're meant to believe about God, about our faith. A principle, which is something that we're to apply to our life in a broad way sort of uh, generosity as a biblical principle, which applies in a lot of different areas, or a command, and that's a specific thing that God says to us that we need to do as his children that applies to all people at all times. Third thing we want to ask is what applies to both their time and ours? If it's an eternal truth, then it translates both into their circumstance as it does to ours. Is it confirmed by the rest of the Bible? If I'm going to draw this out of the passage, is it something that I know the whole Bible speaks of? Just quickly, let me point out a very important thing, and that's the difference between something that is explicit and something that is implicit. You know the difference? An explicit thing is very clearly stated. You know it, can't argue with it. Those are the things that the evangelical church universally agrees with because the Bible's so clear about it. It's explicit. It's explicit. Implicit is something that may be implied, but is open to a lot of interpretation. So when we come to a passage and we try to draw a truth out of it that uh, it may not be so clear, we interpret the implicit based on what is explicit. We interpret the thing that is less clear based on what is absolutely crystal clear in the Bible as we try to determine these truths. And then a final thing and a very important step, not the last Uh, as far as importance, is how do we see Jesus Christ in the text? You remember when we started the series, we found ourselves with Jesus and the two disciples on the road to Emmaus who were thoroughly confused about the events that had taken place around the arrest, the trial, and the death of Jesus. And now the rumor that they'd heard that he was alive. And none of this jived with their understanding of the Bible, as well intended as they were. What did Jesus say to them? You don't understand the Scriptures. And then he showed them from Moses, the first books in the Bible, everything the Scripture said about himself. We don't fully understand the Bible if we don't keep in mind that the whole story from beginning to end is Jesus. He's in every verse. He's in every passage. There is something from Genesis to Revelation that either sets the stage for Christ, that prepares us for him, that celebrates him, that records what he did, that anticipates his ongoing work and looks to the new heaven and the new earth. So we always look for Christ in the passage. One of the men today that I think is profoundly influencing the church is Tim Keller. And one of the things he does best, and why he's one of my heroes, is that no matter where he is in God's word, he always ends it by pointing to Christ. That's what the word does. That's what our lives are meant to do. Right. We'll pick up next week. I, I realize it's, it's very lecture-oriented. but I think it's important nonetheless. I hope you're growing through it. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for what we're learning. I thank you just for the privilege and the challenge of taking these ideas of how we handle God's Word and bringing it to us as a body and how how carefully and well uh, my church family here is listening. And I appreciate so much the faces and the smiles and the receptiveness. Father, we want to be your people. Uh, We want our lives to be centered on Christ as we've worshipped and as we've confessed it today. We want your word to be your voice into our lives to change us. Help us to take that responsibility. Help us to take it with fervor and with dedication. Your words to us. In Jesus' name, amen.